This is an ABC podcast. The legendary cook, author, food producer and educator Maggie Beer is one of those people who you might have thought had a patrician upbringing in a fine stately home. Maggie knows so much about food and cooking and gastronomy. It's a world she's been in for nearly five decades. She's beautifully spoken and the products that bear her name sit in the fancy fine food section of the supermarket. But Maggie Beer is a long way from being to the manner born. Her early life was not cushioned by money and influence. Maggie grew up in Lakemba in southwest Sydney, and her first job was in a factory making chenille bedspreads, back in the days when Australians made such things. So today you're going to hear the origin story of Maggie Beer, the early years of struggle that made her the superpowered being she is today, who has fortunately put those great powers in the service of niceness rather than evil and chocolate ice cream. Hello, Maggie. <laughs> Hello, Richard. <laughs> oh, dear. When you sit in your office in the Barossa Valley, what do you see when you look out the window? Oh, I'm so lucky. I have a whole wall of glass looking out onto my Kalamata olive grove. And at the moment, there are little finches and blue wrens that sit on the windowsill or on the, the door that opens the office and just peck. <laughs> I love it. How lovely. When I, when I saw like footage of the study where Roald Dahl used to write his, his stories, I imagined it to be this beautiful palatial room, but it was actually a real mess. It was a real hodgepodge and that's how he seemed to like it. Is your place really lovely or is it a bit more of a kind of a messy hodgepodge? Well, it's, it's a bit of both in that my desks and I have a, a big table we can all sit around if, if we're having a meeting, but it is full of books and folders. It is a room full of books, but my desk is just cluttered like you wouldn't believe. But I do know where everything is. I'm not a tidy person. Well, I think most people who are creative aren't tight, tidy people at all. And are all your books sort of lined up in kind of like according to different different kinds of food? Is that how it works? Oh, yes. I do have I do have structure with my books because it's a huge room. It's been part of a, a shed we took over to make my office. And I have hundreds and hundreds of books. But I have, if they're cookbooks, they're the hugest is the Australian section. And then I've got the French, I've got the Italian and Spanish, uh, the whole of the Mediterranean together, the English. And then I've got my another wall of books that are all gastronomy and um, uh, and very old cookbooks. So there is there is a method there. But then, of course, they're they're not organised within that, that um, arena of, of the Australian books, but I know where they all are. Given that there's uh, all these books from different food traditions, have you reached the end of it yet? Have you have you mastered it all yet, Maggie, or is there still more stuff to look at and find out? Oh, oh far from it. I don't master anything. I just absorb and do, and I'll never stop learning. Honestly, when I, when I look at um, a cookbook... I'm absorbing an idea but never following a recipe. Uh, and it's like when you go out to dinner, you absorb an idea. But I absorb ideas from everywhere. But I'm very, I'm a bit boring in lots of ways because I'm very Mediterranean. Yes, very. <laughs> what does that mean to be very Mediterranean? Do you mean ingredients or a style? Well, both actually, because the Barossa is a true, Medi well, South Australia, true Mediterranean climate. And everything we grow fits into um, uh, the, the culture of Mediterranean food. And because we're farmers, you know, we have vineyards, we have orchards, we have olive groves, have big veggie garden, we have birds, we have sheep in a small way, not big farmers. So I'm seduced by the ingredients I have to hand. So that keeps me within a Mediterranean framework most times, but it also is the food I love because it is food that's easy and full of flavour, but not complicated. It's the food of longevity too, isn't it? Because like <laughs> in Northern Europe, all that food, I kind of love it, all that delicious sausages and everything like that, but everyone drops dead of you know cholesterol problems at the age of 40. But uh, the Mediterranean food is the food of longevity too, isn't it? Well, it is. If you had, if you had to sort of choose food to protect your brain for longevity, and, and cognitive alertness, then it would be Mediterranean is your first choice. 
You grew up in Lakemba, like I said, in uh, southwest Sydney, which I think has probably got plenty of Mediterranean food these days from the Middle East. But nonetheless, what was it like when you grew up there? Uh, it was pretty ordinary. I think we were the only house with big gum trees in the front yard. It was very treeless. The uh, roads were unmade. There were some shops around the railway station. And I think the picture theatre and the Chinese restaurant were the most exciting things there. Uh, very few shops. And now I, I've only been back once uh, when I went back with Julia Zamiro. And I couldn't believe the colour, the excitement of Lakemba now. It was a very, very different place. Were you burning to get out as a kid? Yes, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to be there, yes. Why had your parents chosen to live in Lakemba? Well, they chose Lakemba because when I was born, our mum and dad had a house in Rose Bay and um, they sold that to buy this property in Lakemba that had a double block because my father wanted to start his own manufacturing business and the second block... Um, had a road access to a huge big shed that was in fact a factory. And so it gave being able to, to work so close to home. Uh, but it was a real, it was a real change from Rose Bay, I have to say. Indeed. What kind of factory was it, Maggie? Well, it was manufacturing aluminium pots and pans. And uh, so when I think about the work that mum and dad put into it, but why aluminium pots and pans was simply because dad had been in a business with his brother in, in an industrial city and went out on his own. But the interesting thing about that is food was so important to the family that somehow it had to be tied to food, and it was. Of course, pots and pans and all that. Um, so your dad was missing a leg. What's the story behind that, Maggie? Well, when he was seven, he was on a tram selling newspapers, as children of that age did in, you know, difficult circumstances, and he was pushed off the tram and he lost his leg. And uh, at that time, it was a really terrible thing, and he went all through his life with many operations and a wooden leg, but... I really only heard the trauma of it after Dad died and my aunt that had been his elder sister told me of, of the terrible traumas he went through. It was just something we accepted and he accepted in my memory of our lives. Was he a charming chap? <laughs> he was so charming. He he was a singer. He had the most beautiful voice. He was he was a dreamer. He was an ideas person, but he he pulled people around him. Yes, I think that was one of the the, the biggest losses of the from the old Australia. I mean, a lot, of, a lot so much of Australia is so much better than it was now than it was then. But that loss of music in everyone's life that was so common back in those days, Maggie. Oh, well, it was. I grew up with nothing but classical music that all my my father and my uncles sang everywhere. My aunt was a jazz singer. It was music everywhere we went. And it was always, Ron, will you sing? We didn't have television, of course, till I was about 10, I suppose. Uh, so it was it was our life, that and the ABC, 2BL. <laughs> it, was the only, it was the only station ever allowed in the house. <laughs> so how did your dad, Ron, meet your mum, Doreen? Uh, well, they were at Ashfield. Well, my father's family lived at Ashbury, my mum at Ashfield. And uh, they had young people's social clubs and and that was the way they went to dances together and my grandfather was a senior commissioner of police and his youngest son my uncle uh, was a policeman at that stage so there were always young cadets around and so that it was a place of it was how they met each other was dances and picnics and yeah how different were their families politics though Oh, my gosh, it couldn't have been more different. I mean, my mum's family were very conservative and bureaucratic and uh, 
very much on the right side. And my dad's family, well, my dad and my uncle were, were communists. And, uh, <laughs> Did that so, make a headline in the, in the Daily Mirror, Live Mary's Commune, Commo? <laughs> well, it would these days, wouldn't it? But um, we used to get these magazines that came in from, from um, Russia uh, <laughs> once a month, big pictorial magazines with the happy farmers on the front. <laughs> and, uh, and yet my, my uncle went through... The from the police to ASIO and was the head of ASIO for New South Wales <laughs> in his day. And so you couldn't be more poles apart, but there was great respect for each other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in the 50s, that's when your dad realised this dream to open his own factory. Was it a big factory? What did it look like? How quickly did it expand? Well, it was, it seems to me with my child's eye, it was very big, but it had about six lathes and machines. It was, it seemed huge, but when I went back, it's not as big as I thought. Mm. It's amazing how, you know, you, you do, you do change your view, but it would have only had six or seven people at its its height running running the show, but it was very, very hands-on, very hard labour, really, working those machines. So the factory's knocking out these aluminium pots and pans. Uh, who was he selling them to? Who was buying these wares? Well, he's, he sold them... Well, the only time I really knew the customer was when mum had a stall at Paddy's Market on Saturday mornings. But that was for, you know, selling direct to the public. Dad had his his channels through, uh, commercial channels that I, I wasn't really aware of. So your mum was taking like a truckload of pots and pans to Paddy's Market. Yes. That's amazing. Every, every Saturday. And my brothers and I used to go there and uh, with her and... And aunt, my auntie Stella used to come and help too, but we'd go wandering and all the fruit and veg and they, um, all the stall holders would give us fruit and veg and, you know, we, it was a bit like a, a big tribe of people that we got to know. This is your accidental education in food then, Maggie. <laughs> Well, it, it was. Now, now that you say that, because I learned, I learned very early in my life, I reckon about the age of seven on how to choose ripe fruit, ripe vegetables. So perhaps it was, perhaps it was Paddy's Market. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, what's the rule of good food? It's simplicity and freshness, isn't it? And you're getting the freshest um, produce in Sydney, I suppose, going to Paddy's Market. We we were, and my my mum's family, they were all gardeners. They loved vegetables, um, and so we gardened. Um, we 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 ate so well, even when there was no money in the house. Somehow, we ate really well. If mum is selling pots and pans in Paddy's Market, it doesn't sound like there's a huge market for this this stuff. What happens to the factory in the end, Maggie? Well, in the end, in the end. Dad went bankrupt, and that was because he, he he was this dreamer, and he couldn't get enough aluminium, and the whole of Australia manufacturing couldn't. So he took on the responsibility of bringing a shipment over from Japan, and the credit squeeze came before it arrived, and he didn't have contracts with other people, so he bore the whole brunt of the the cost of that and that's what sent us bankrupt. But I think it was happening before that. I think that was his last ditch. What do you remember of that time, that lead up to the time when the bankruptcy happened? I remember I remember the floor littered with bills that were not opened. Um, I remember that so strongly and I have had a difficulty all my life <laughs> with bills and money and um, running the pheasant farm days of the restaurant, I could never pass a bill over to a customer, even though I knew they had to pay. <laughs> I could never be the one. And I, uh, yes, it, it's sort of, that's the, that's one thing that sits with me. Did it frighten the hell out of you watching your dad go bankrupt? You were like, what, in your early teens at the time? That must have been terrifying in a way. I was, I was about 13 when I saw it really happening. Um, and, well, what was terrifying is what it was doing to dad and therefore mum. And, and then all of a sudden it, it just happened one day, um, but I was 14 at that time. It just happened and we had to get up and leave our home uh, and our furniture, everything. Uh, so, you know, 
you just do what you have to do and we did. We, we, we just did it. But it does leave scars and different scars for my brother, my brothers and different scars for me. How did it affect your dad? It took, it took all the stuffing out of him. He just, um, he fell over. He fell over in every kind of way and it took a long time. Um, it, it took a long time before he would even get out of bed, I think. Um, he, he was just broken. I know it's a bit, you know, Scarlett O'Hara to say this might have been one of those moments, you know, where you pull the turnips out of the ground and you say, I won't ever be <laughs> poor again. But seriously, though, was it like that for you? Because you're so hardworking. Everyone says that about you, Maggie. You work so incredibly hard. Do you think in some ways you might be running from that, trying to keep yourself safe from that kind of fear and shock of something like that? Well, the hard work is part of me and part because I could see my mum and dad and small business people so often are really hard workers because they know everything has to be done. But, you know, money has never driven me. So it's almost the reverse of it. And and I've never, I was lucky to meet Colin, my husband of 52 years, because <laughs> he and I together were risk takers. So I don't think... I don't think I was running from being poor. I was, I was just, no, I don't think I was running from being poor. But it did, it just, I guess because I found I had something which was grit, I realised that it doesn't matter, you can always make your way. Did this mean you had to leave school? <laughs> yes, I did. I was 14 and I was young for my age. So uh, just as I did the intermediate, the teachers had a meeting with mum and dad and the, the principal. I was offered a scholarship to stay on and my dad said, no, she can't do that. She needs to go out to work and be a secretary because she's just a girl and she'll get married. She just needs a job. And look, when I think about it, I didn't even blame. It was the mores of the time. It wasn't something that I ever held against him. And when I think about it, if I had have gone on, taken that scholarship and gone, gone to the city, gone to Fort Street, I would have been a very different person. You might have been a lawyer or something like that. <laughs> the world doesn't need more lawyers, Maggie. We need nice food, though. <laughs> uh, well, yes. When I think about it, you know, you do have what ifs in your life. Mm. And I suffered from inferiority for a long, long time because I didn't have an education. But I got over that eventually. So this is when you got the job at the age of 14 in a chenille bedspread factory <laughs> making chenille bedspreads. This is great. So so how keen were your parents for you to stay in that job for a while, Maggie? <laughs> well, this is this is um, uh, family folklore, but it was absolutely true. Mum and Dad said, and it was mainly Dad, he was the, you know, autocrat. He said, you must stay for a year at the very least. Otherwise, people will think you're a flippity gibbet. <laughs> Can you imagine that word? And... And I stayed one year to the day. <laughs> so, so you were officially non-flippity gibbet then in that yes. sense. <laughs> I love that word. I haven't heard that word for such a long time. They ought to bring that back. I wonder what a flippity gibbet is. As someone who just flits from one thing to the other, I suppose. Yes. Mm. I often think my mind's a bit like that uh, because I, I'm always thinking of so many things. But uh, yes, I did what I was told. I was a very obedient <laughs> child then. It changed later. <laughs> Can't stay. I'm a flippity gibbet. <laughs> We've got a flippity gibbet here and flippity gibbet there. Yeah. That's wonderful. Do you remember what you were paid in that job? Yes, I do. Five pounds. Five pounds. And my my brother, Peter, my elder brother, left work too, uh, uh, left, left school to work, and he was paid seven pounds fifty, but he was two years older than me. And... Uh, it was. It seemed like a lot of money, but we both gave it to mum and dad. Um, and I guess we got pocket money. I can't even remember that. And we never minded. That was before the days of equal pay when you used to have ads, help wanted ads in the paper under men and boys and a separate one for women and girls, wasn't it? Yes, mm. that's true. That's true. 
So how important at this time were your aunts named Glad and Rita? Well, I was so lucky to have these two maiden aunts. They were, my mum was the youngest and absolutely adored by my aunts. And particularly my auntie Gladys was like, my my first mentor and she was she was a headmistress of my primary school and then went on to be headmistress of a big boys school in sydney and she she was well they were both 6 foot tall and Auntie Glad used to, she had a booming voice and she used to walk around the house sprouting poetry and, <laughs> and uh, she kept, and I was very particularly close to her and she kept me, I was always a reader, but she kept me educated through books and she, she was like a second mother. How about your Auntie Rita? Was she a different uh, kind of character? Auntie Rita was, was, didn't have the same strength of, of, learning and life and she she was almost disadvantaged in the family she she'd been almost drowned at about the age of 2 years of age and she she had she had some sort of she had a bit of a mental disability and she was she was kept as as a almost a lesser being and was auntie glad the carer of her well, Auntie Reed didn't need a carer so much in anything but financial ways, but she was kind of street smart in in other ways. And she, but she was the cook. She was she was the 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 helper in the family for everybody. So you said after the factory failed, your mum and dad had to start again, sell the house. How did the, they reinvent themselves after this disaster? Well, it uh, probably took eighteen months, perhaps two years. And mum and dad started <laughs> catering at, um, at a golf club. Uh, by then, it was, out in, it was out near Auburn, out that way. And um, so first of all, a golf club and then an RSL club. And in fact, when Colin and I married, it was the Chester Hill RSL that we had our big wedding breakfast, as they call them. And a feast that it was, but they turned their love of food, their ability to to work into into a business to get them started again. And so much so, they were able to buy a little house in Auburn, a little fibro house on a big plot of land, uh, as suburban plots were then. And, and began again, but he was so far ahead of his time. Like my dad used to hang fillets of beef in the cool room for ages, just like they do now. <laughs> and had food always been important? Good food been important in your family's life? It was important for every memory I have of any celebration. It was a feast. Food was food was so important. It was not just the vegetables we grew. It was uh, it it was every part of an animal. Like we would make brawn out of a pig's head. We had our uncle who had a farm at Castle Hill. He would grow some poultry, and we would get geese from him. We would go dabbing for prawns uh, in the heart. Uh, we would have whole fish and oysters off the rocks. Every everything was about beautiful food, simple beautiful food. So there was good food to be had in those days, and I suppose this is before the days of total mass manufactured food that appeared in supermarkets everywhere. Look, it was good food, but it was very limited. Like in in the green grocer, you would have you would have spinach, um, and you would have. At this time of year, you'd have turnips and sweets and and parsnips and carrot and pumpkin, and you would have uh, beans and 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 peas. You know, it was very limited. There was no such thing as basil and zucchini and eggplant and, uh, but it was about it was about freshness and it was about. I think it was more about offal for animals. Offal is my favourite food. Really? <laughs> yes. Yes. Try. Well, because Dad loved it, and my first thing I ever cooked about the age of seven were chicken livers, and I cooked livers on the stove, and I remember Dad saying, um, stop picking at that, there will be none left for the table. I love brains and sweetbreads. Tripe was the only thing that I couldn't bear, 
and I couldn't bear the smell. I have a very sensitive sense of smell. <laughs> and well, mum and dad one day made me sit at the table from lunch to dinner until I ate it and I still wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> There's the trauma. That's it there, I think. Tribe trauma. That's but it. now I love it. Now oh, yeah, I love really? it. Really? Right. Yes. Oh. Well, that's good to know. So, like, in those days, there wasn't any Mag Maggie beer fig and walnut ice cream in the freezer <laughs> at the back of the uh, supermarket. What was no. dessert like in those days? Well... Dessert was very rare for us. Um, we used to have a lot of fruit, but dessert would be a bread and butter custard if it was a special treat. Or well, that's pretty the, nice. That's pretty yes. nice. Bit of cinnamon on top, that sort of yes, thing. Yes, yeah. and the little and the little um, raisins would would burn on the top, and I would love it when they were burnt. Mm. And just sometimes we'd have in the winter golden syrup dumplings, but that was a rarity. That was a special occasion. listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. So when we were talking just a moment ago, you had this job which you took on for one year exactly at a chenille factory, a bedspread factory in, in uh, Sydney. And then you left to go out into the world. What did you do once you left the Chenille Bedspread family, Maggie? Well, I got a job in a temporary agency because I learned at school uh, how to type very, very quickly. And that was the best thing I ever learned at school, by the way. So I would be sent from one place to another to troubleshoot when someone was away because I was a quick I was a quick learner and I I was a good worker. And so I found that I learnt a tremendous amount going into different different offices and they could be really tiny or they could be big, but always was learning something extra. But from there I found the job I wanted, which was for the New Zealand Senior Trade Commissioner in, in Martin Place. So I was just 18 at the time and got a job there as a, a receptionist, but that started my want to travel. But I didn't stay there long. I went nursing. Where was your first overseas trip? Was that to New Zealand? That was to New Zealand. It was indeed. And on <laughs> on an Italian liner that didn't have any stabilizers and I remember dancing they had to rope in the dance floor and and all the all the songs were sort of ciao ciao bambino and <laughs> that sounds great actually it was the most fantastic time once you got was. your sea legs I'm sure <laughs> after that and, and and tell me what happened on the flight back from New Zealand because I just can't believe this <laughs> well I was in New Zealand for four months uh, four or five months and I had a promised to my parents I'd come back for Peter's 21st. Didn't want to come. So I was the last person to get a, a ticket on a plane from Christchurch to Sydney and right at the very tail end. And it was the Beatles. So the Beatles <laughs> flight from Christchurch to Sydney. They were on the same plane as you. <laughs> they were Were you, were you going plane. out of your mind? Well, no. You see, I didn't know. I guess I'd heard of the Beatles, but oh, I don't. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> no, I I honestly didn't know. I didn't know their music at all. You know, this classical music thing was so much part of me. I never looked for popular music. Maggie, are you seriously telling me you were on the same plane as the Beatles and you just weren't that impressed at the time? Oh, no, no. I became impressed because I could feel the excitement and there was a special menu, and I, but I didn't know their music. But they came down. They were so wonderful. I can't remember which of them, but there were two. Oh, I can't remember which of them. <laughs> no, they came down and sat on, on, on the edge of the seats of several of the people. And you could imagine the excitement on the plane, the buzz, and this special menu we were all given. And so when I really realised how important they were was when we landed and they opened the back door first, keeping the Beatles on the plane, but there were thousands and thousands of people and <laughs> and I'm the first one out. <laughs> so, it, so it wasn't to be with John, Paul, George or Ringo, who, <laughs> who you weren't that particularly interested in. Instead, it was going to be a, a very nice, handsome chap called Colin. How did you meet Colin? 
Well, I, I met Colin because after New Zealand, I came back wanting to really travel. And so I uh, did lots of jobs to get the money, spent four years in, in Europe, mainly in Scotland as my base, and came back to Australia because my dad was very ill. Got a job at Bankstown Airport for, well, the CEO of ANSET General Aviation. So I learned about planes. But my first year of holidays I wanted to ski. I went to Threadbow. There was no snow and I'd skied every year in Europe. So I, out of the blue, rang up Karura Chalet at Mount Bull and said, could I have a job? They said, yes, come and make sandwiches. And there, after a few weeks, went to a party and Colin was there and he'd been in New Zealand doing his commercial pilot's license. And so that night, we talked about planes all night. My we God, just... that's a real aphrodisiac for men. <laughs> Well, I I got to f- fly. Well, sitting in the in the co-pilot seat, uh, <laughs> being with Ansett General was Piper Aircraft. So honestly, the, from that night we weren't we weren't separated. And sixteen weeks later, we married fifty two years ago. <laughs> You're still married today. That's wonderful. And, and I have to ask, what was the food at your wedding like? Oh, it was wonderful because Mum and Dad did it, and it was a, a feast and. There was crayfish. There were there were chooks, of course. I can just see it in my mind. I, I couldn't. I was so excited. I I didn't eat anything, but it was <laughs> just as every celebration had been, but with bells on. So, where did the newlyweds, you and Colin, begin your married life? We began at Kirribilli. We we took an apartment for twenty dollars a week. Really? How did you fit in with the posh North Shore? seen up there. Well, we, we didn't. Colin, Colin played Aussie Rules, eight-grade Aussie Rules in Sydney, and I didn't fit in with the North Shore ladies and so felt quite uncomfortable. So I used to sit on the side and, and read a book and sort of sort of look at the football. Anytime Colin had the ball, I wanted to see it, but I'm not a football <laughs> person. <laughs> yes, it wasn't, it wasn't something... I didn't ever feel I belonged so Colin was a pilot. Nonetheless, you ha- came up with this dream together of starting a pheasant farm. How, what, what, why pheasants? What was that about? Well, it was all Colin's vision because he'd trained as a commercial pilot, but he couldn't get a job as such because there was a real recession. And so when I got a job in uh, Sydney, he did too, but he got a job doing computers for Pricewaterhouse and it was the first computer, was a whole big room and he was an operator, but he wasn't he wasn't happy with city life and wanted to go back to the country. Uh, he came from Malala, which is near Barossa. And it was his vision entirely because when he was doing his commercial pilot's licence in the South Island of New Zealand, he would see wild wild game. And so we followed his idea. And I was happy to come and live in in the country from the city because I'd lived in the country in Scotland and and loved it and felt at home the moment we got to the Barossa. Barossa in those days was already a winemaking district, wasn't it? German winemakers had been there for Mm -hmm. quite a while. Why did you feel so at home apart from the country life? Why did you think it was going to suit you so well, Maggie? Well, I've never exactly known, but I suspect my maiden name is Ackerman, and I suspect that that German heritage might have still been in there somewhere, no matter how diluted it was now. But it was the life that revolved around food and the rhythm of the um, seasons and being part of a community. I felt I really belonged. And from the moment I remember picking the first ripe white peach in my hands. And I knew, I knew that I belonged. They smell so good, those ripe peaches. <laughs> I can don't smell they? it now. <laughs> mm, they smell fantastic. Yeah. So uh, what was happening in your life when you moved to South Australia? I was pregnant with Saskia and I got a job selling land because I'd been looking for land so long. The real estate agent thought, well, <laughs> he knew me and gave me a job. And so that's, in fact, how we found the property that we live on today. And uh, then I lost that job, became a, a land broker to keep Wolf from the door as Colin was pitchforking grapes to make some money while we farmed. And then Colin won the Churchill Fellowship um, for game bird breeding. And that was the, the springboard for everything else we ever did. Where did the Churchill Fellowship take him? And, and did you go with him as well? 
I went with him because mum lived with us then because dad had died years ago and the girls were only two and four and we thought that would be fine living the extended family as we did. But we went to the UK, to Scotland, to Germany and to uh, the US. I came home earlier, but it was that Churchill Fellowship that gave us exactly that epiphany of exactly what we wanted to do, which was actually on the border of Scotland, a turkey farm that sold everything Every part of the animal, the bird, the the feathers even, direct to the public by value-adding. And so we came home and opened the farm shop. And what was the vision for this farm shop? To do that, just that, sell every part of the bird? Yes, the, the vision was to sell everything that we grew, which was quail and pheasant and guinea fowl, to value add, to pickle the quail's eggs, to uh, bring in our local neighbours' produce, you know, using their almonds, getting someone to make beautiful bread for us, direct to the public where I would cook to show people how how beautiful pheasant was when it was cooked properly. And so it was a, a way of... Of, of teaching as well as communicating directly with, with our public. It was a wonderful time, but by gosh, we worked hard. Yeah, I was thinking that Australians then and probably now don't have any idea of how to cook a game bird like a pheasant. I wonder what the secret is. Maggie, are you prepared to give that away? Yes, of, of course. See, because I was never taught to cook, but I inherited this instinct for food from my dad, um, just how to cook. And so I didn't look at any books. I just cooked it at very high temperature with a long resting period. And and that was the secret to it. Oh. And yet any book you might have bought would be a European based book because there would be nothing in Australia about cooking pheasants at that time, uh, would have been long and slow. Yeah, and dry, I was just going to say, dry. I just would have thought that's how you'd do it for no. a very long time and slowly. Well, I guess the difference is that these birds I was cooking weren't of indeterminate age. We knew exactly the age they were. So I knew I was cooking young birds. So if it was an old breeder bird that I was cooking, then I would have cooked it long and slow. So that's why the European books had no relevance because those birds cooked there were game shot in the wild. So then came the pheasant farm restaurants. And <laughs> yes. how hard were you working, Maggie, to <gasps> juggle all these things? Oh, well, I was still working as a broker. How I ever had the audacity to do that when I had no experience, I went out on my own. But I also, the fact that we went from farm shop to restaurant with no experience, it was learning one step ahead of my of the customers. But it was... Colin was not only looking after the pheasants, delivering to Adelaide, coming back, being on the floor at lunchtime. We would do our own laundry because there wasn't a laundry that was available to us. So we'd do the laundry at night. I'd pickle the quail eggs with a bucket of quail eggs between my legs, telling stories to the girls. It was it was huge, but we were... We were doing something that was very real and learning every, every moment, every moment we'd learn more. I would learn more about produce, about um, traditions. I'd look to the traditions of the Mediterranean and then make them to my own palate. So it was a wonderful, wonderful time. You see, I think the most stressful part, I suspect, of running a restaurant like that is the transition from the stress and tension and rage of the kitchen to the kind of studied pleasantness of the dining room. I, I've actually had that 40 Towers experience, Maggie, of actually going for breakfast in a hotel one day and, have, and seeing, seeing the, the waiter walk out of the tongue-tongue door shouting at the staff, shut your mouth and get on with it and do as you're told. And when she wheeled around and realised that we were all overhearing it, she sort of smiled and said, oh, your breakfast will be long shortly, like that. Um, uh, Hattie, is that really stressful, managing that transition? No, no. Well, see, I've never lost my uh, temper, but I was. there was had to be silence in the kitchen. No one was allowed to chatter because I'm very obsessive and very focused and I always led the kitchen, but almost never went out front, not to the very 
end of the day if there were friends or local winemakers, etc. So it was a very different kind of kitchen. But Colin was the one because he has <laughs> such humour, very droll, very dry. And if, <laughs> if someone was was annoying him, my gosh, he would... Um, <laughs> you know about it, right. <laughs> I, I suppose, you know, working for a year in a chenille bedspread factory, after that you can probably much, pretty much do anything. So then we get to 1991 when your restaurant won the Gourmet Traveller Restaurant of the Year Award. What kind of an impact did that have on the life of you and your restaurant? Well, it was amazing. It was the most unexpected thing. And and yet it put us into another arena that we were not ready for. We were a small country restaurant doing these wonderful, well, I thought they were wonderful, simple things with every bit of projects we had to hand. And all of a sudden, it was the biggest surprise, not only to us, but to the whole of the restaurant industry in Australia that we should win this. And all of a sudden, there were helicopters coming into the ram paddock. There was not one. We had to have Sassy was just had this whole day of answering the phone and trying to book people in. All of a sudden, there was never one space left. It was it, it was just, it was frenetic. And I found it exciting. Colin, <laughs> Colin had a gut full of it because people would come and say things like, I have been wanting to come from the moment the announcement was made. And he'd say, sit, <laughs> sit down, behave yourself. You'll get what Maggie wants to give you. <laughs> And uh, what it was, we didn't change, but there were 90% of people were absolutely wonderful and fantastic. But then there were these 10% of people that had this expectation that we would have glamour and glitz and, and, and we never did and we never were going to. So after 18 months, two years, when was the first time we really made money in the, in the restaurant, Colin came in one day and said, it's restaurant or me. And I said him. <laughs> so the rest is history then. You know, 96, you and Colin started your export production kitchen in Tanunda near the farm where you, where the food came from. And uh, 23 years later, in 2019, you both sold the whole of Maggie Beer products to a big company. And I don't know, can you, you – and you've also had this television career as well, appearing in the ABC TV series The Cook and the Chef. You've been appearing on MasterChef. And 2010, you were awarded Senior Australian of the Year. So so it's been it's been a wild old ride, Maggie. Um, and are you still working as hard now as you did then in those days? Well, I am, um, but in a different way in that I'm still very tied to um, the farm and the farm shop and younger daughter Ellie has the eatery. So that still takes focus because it's a seven-day operation and we kept all of the farming and and uh, and the farm, the pheasant farm. But really it's um, my foundation, the Maggie Beer Foundation, where I'm trying to change the food in aged care. And it has been a journey since 2014. I want to make change much quicker than I've been able to up to now. But I really have a platform and the support of the government as well. And look, we have a, a real responsibility as a society to do so much better on many levels. But for those in aged care, we need to give them beautiful food that has that has flavour and pleasure and health with it in every mouthful and give them a good life to the end of their life. So this is a thing, an issue that became, uh, well, the whole quality of aged care really has come to the fore in recent years, but you've been doing this since 2014, as you say. Why has the food in so many areas of aged care been so poor? Well, many reasons. One of them is budget. One of them is the, the lack of importance of food in, in many areas of life. You know, not everyone loves food and understands the, the goodness and the health and the, the well-being that food gives. The, the fact that the, the cooks and chefs 
in aged care are working so hard under such difficult conditions without support and also there's no specialised training for chefs in aged care, nor is there any base requirement for expertise before they go into the position. It's just not being held as important and it must be. How have you become aware of this as a issue, Maggie? Well, I, I was aware when I was made Senior Australian of the Year, I had 900 requests to speak that year and didn't do them all. But the one that made this life, you know, this, this um, sliding door was when I was asked to speak to a thousand CEOs of aged care in their annual conference in um, Hobart that year. So I did a lot of research and I wasn't really aware of the situation until I went into homes and I found wonderful things and I found others with terrible things. And so in my talk in that that keynote speech, I was very naive, but very enthusiastic. And I thought I had all sorts of solutions by bringing all my food friends around Australia with great recipes and ideas that could suit aged care, but it's much more complex than that. But that gave me that gave me the the path that I had to be on. It was right there. Well, we've known for a long while the pleasure and comfort that people in aged care get from music, from the music of their young lives. And the pleasure they get from sense memories from their early lives, which remain very powerful with them. Now, when you gave a submission to the Royal Commission to Aged Care, you talked about the importance of aroma, of smell, of the scent of cooking. Tell me more about that. Well, it is so vital. As we age, we lose saliva. And saliva is one of the keys to digestion, but it's also one of the keys to that trigger that we're hungry. And when you have the scent of real food, it's it's it evokes a memory that is a good memory, a memory of of a soup on the on the stove as you're growing up mm. in the winter. It's it's evocative, it, it has a physiological journey and it makes you want to eat and it must it, it is incredibly important and so like anything cooked in butter will do that won't it oh well i mean anything co- like mushrooms in butter mm. or onions being cooked and there are all sorts of things that we as the foundation encourage like having bread machines in the dining room for that smell of bread oh, baking lovely 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 yeah but we've got to get to the root cause and get all the food beautifully cooked. We have to give the support to these hardworking people in aged care. How about the dining room itself in aged care residences? How about making that feel a bit better and more pleasurable place to be in? Well, we need to make it feel as close to it being their home as possible. Opening curtains, looking, having the right lighting, having having the right music in the background, if it's not disturbing, sometimes it does. Looking out onto a garden, having gardens uh, is so important and and having having the table set by the residents, perhaps, when they want to do it. Having flowers on the table, little flowers that they might have picked from the garden, edible flowers in case, you know, someone thinks they're, they're part of the dinner, of course, but not having any plastic, having colourful plates um, with the so the food is very easy to, to view, that it's not white plates on white tablecloths, if indeed there are tablecloths. It's making making a joy of dining. Older people are in some ways, I don't want to say they're childlike, but they are like children insofar as they're sequestered and they can't, they need advocates outside of the old folks' home, don't they? Like yourself, they need these advocates. They do indeed. And they also, one of the most important things is, um, you know, Montessori says, everything you do for me, you take from me. We have to make sure that people are left with things to do for themselves and be part of, to be connected, have a have focus and reason. And we need advocates from everywhere. Yes. So much of aged care was privatised quite some decades ago under the theory that greater efficiencies could be found by the private sector as opposed to a, a sort of an unresponsive bureaucracy. But it is... 
There are other values than efficiency here, surely, Maggie? Well, yes, there, there are. But, you know, with the most important thing to me is when the whole of a home wants to be part of a journey of raising the bar about the the beauty of of food that gives um, that gives pride to the staff that gives pleasure to the residents to give them something to look forward to that's going to give them the energy to be involved and to have the carers with the pride as well as 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 the as the cooks and chefs have the management supported and what you can do then is is quite incredible but everyone has to be involved here nothing you're talking about sounds very expensive either maggie no well i i went to two homes here in adelaide yesterday uh, a Dutch home and an Italian home, Rembrandt and Bene. And there the food was so, so beautiful. And I know that what they can do, because their their cooks and chefs are so passionate, that if you had $15 a day and you had a chef that was really trained with what is possible, had had um, the garden that supported the home with fresh herbs and the processes to have all the safety measures that were important, you could do really, really beautiful food at $15 a day if you were buying well and cooking fresh. Now, that isn't a lot of money, but they're not even using that in many homes. Maggie, it's been so lovely to speak with you. I'm about to dash off now and bake some bread, roast a pheasant, <laughs> and perhaps finish off the meal with some bread and butter pudding with sort of caramelised raisins on top. So, look, it's been such a pleasure, Maggie. I just got that stuff in my head and I'm really suggestible. So, look, I, I really love this conversation. Thank you so much, Maggie. Thank you, Richard. It's been special for me. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. My stand-up was mostly me talking about experiences of racism, you know, and I had no shortage of material. A comedian and two ASIO agents walk into a bar. Sounds like a joke, but it's a true story. And the comedian, he's being questioned over the likelihood of his Islamic radicalisation while ordering the most expensive thing on the menu. Uh, we would joke about ASIO following us. We would have phone conversations pretending to be ASIO. Ca we'd call up each other and pretend to be ASIO just to scare the other person. That's just one of the stories that we have for you on the latest season of Days Like These. The little nun said, What oh, to be sure, you'd never be able to carry that. It's way too heavy. Just post it. And I felt so much guilt. I actually saw the bolt coming towards me. I thought, you know, someone got me with a bazooka. I didn't think I had that many people I'd rejected. <laughs> Seeing her on the screen, this gorgeous little jelly bean, like, in my heart, I knew I had to give it a chance. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Join me on Days Like These for stories about the day when everything changed. Well, they said, oh, there's something wrong with your home. And it's like, well, duh, right? Like I'm in a wheelchair. Episodes drop weekly starting February 9.